The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Chapter in Isaiah that was written some 700 years before the life of Christ. And it says this, it says, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Listen to this. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Gracious Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word, the teaching of your word, and the receiving of your word today. Let us open the word to understand you better and let us obey your word and live in response to it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder this morning, have you ever reached a point in a relationship uh, with a person or around a particular issue where enough is enough, where you're done being polite and, and done mincing words and, and you just suddenly go from being polite and respectful and all these things to being very, very direct? Anyone ever had that experience? Some of you pretty much every day, right? But I remember when a friend of mine had hit his limit, I was thinking about this because uh, we were having some trouble with the AC in the room earlier, and, and I am someone who, like every self-respecting person, I like to have control of the thermostat, right? I like to keep it nice and cool. Anyone with me? Now, some of you are against me, and that's okay, uh, but in my home, I like to keep it pretty cool. And so every Monday evening for years, I was hosting this men's Bible study where we would come together and we'd study God's word and we went through huge chunks of scripture together. This was my, my small group. And all the guys would come week after week and no one seemed to complain about how cool I liked to keep the apartment. But there was one guy in the group who was from California. Okay. And um, though he was always polite, uh, he was always faithful to come. There's more going on under the surface. Well, how do I know? Well, one Bible study evening on a hot summer day when my air conditioning was not keeping up and doing so well, I apologized and said, uh, guys, I'm sorry that it's so warm in here. And he just snapped. And, and he, he goes, good, because your house is always freezing. <laughs> I did not realize that I had offended him so, and I didn't realize it was so easy to, to break a Californian. And so we, we, we all look at each other in st- stunned silence like, whoa. What just happened? This guy has, has reached his limit where for him enough was enough and he was going to come to me Matthew 18 style uh, to tell me my offense against him and if I didn't respond surely he was going to bring witnesses and then bring it to the church until I repent. But I got the message loud and clear. He had reached the point where he was done being polite and he was going to be very direct and tell me 
what was on his mind. And in Mark chapter 12, which we are beginning to look at this week, uh, Jesus is in that mode. He is in a mode where he's not flying off the handle. He's not, he's not uh, having mood swings. But he is done with the, the niceties and the politeness, especially with these religious people who continue to reject him, to, to question him, and uh, who will not turn. He's been so patient. Often as he, he comes and teaches people, he, he's avoided their verbal traps. He's used parables to obscure his message so that those that might be offended by it won't even understand it, and only those who have ears to hear will hear and understand. But in this last week of ministry, as he goes into Jerusalem and he's looking forward toward the cross, you get the sense that he is not going to hold back anymore. He's had enough. He sees the hardened hearts of Israel. He sees the spiritual abuse all around him as the worship of God Almighty in the temple has been reduced to this money-making show business enterprise, and he is tired of it. He has no desire or time to be polite, and through his interactions with the religious leaders, you see this in him. You see this holy frustration. Already uh, during this Passover week, he's been staying outside of town with his friends in Bethany. And every morning, as it leads up to, to Good Friday, he's going to walk into town. He's going to walk the two miles, about 40 minutes into town with his disciples. And he's going to return to the temple, his father's house, each day. And, and on Monday morning, he went into the temple. And, and you remember this from last week. He, he began to flip over tables of, of the money changers and the merchants because they were turning his father's house, a house of prayer, into a house of, of commerce, of buying and selling, of, of self seeking rather than worshipful endeavors. And so he, he does this, and then he leaves town again. He comes back on Tuesday morning past a smoldering fig tree. You'll have to go back a couple weeks to remember what that's all about. And, and the symbol of what is going to happen in Jerusalem in the coming decades. But he walks back into the temple of God, and he's, he's coming in to this environment, and he is... Uh, about to be confronted once more by people who are opposed to his message. He's coming to these people that, that ought to be humbly submissive to God, but instead they are utterly unfruitful, unfaithful, and unforgiving. Now, now, as we get into this passage, and even as we reflect back on last week, I don't want you to make the mistake that Jesus is out of control somehow. He is not. He's not emotionally unstable. God is unchanging. Jesus is God in the flesh. God is unchanging. Theologians call this his immutability. He's also impassable. And what they mean by that when they say he's impassable is, is that he is not vulnerable to fluctuations of emotion the way we are. God doesn't have mood swings. And, and what a comfort to know that that is the case. What a frightening thing it would be if God were to, to, to fly off the handle, so to speak. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, our Trinitarian God, is, is profoundly emotional. But what's different about God relative to us is that he is not subject to his emotions like we are. He's not controlled by his emotions the way we are. Rather, he is eternally self-controlled, steadfast, strong, and consistent in his perfect love and justice. And so here, as Jesus becomes impassioned against the unfruitfulness, the unfaithfulness, the unforgiveness of his covenant people, his frustration is perfectly consistent with his unchanging character. And so he comes into the temple once more. And picture the scene. It's a cool spring morning. It's a time of celebration. There's tons of pilgrims uh, coming into the city to celebrate this great Jewish holiday and tradition. And the courtyards are busy with, with worshipers and these pilgrims and merchants who are avoiding eye contact with Jesus as he returns to the temple, very wary of this Galilean rabbi. And as he walks into the temple, there is this group of well-dressed men who comes right toward him. 
walks up to him, and, and these are the rabbis, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are the special people, the holy people, the people that everyone looks up to and aspires to be, those that hold the political, social, and religious control in Israel. And they are eager to confront him. So, so he walks in, and they come toward him as a large group. Clearly, they've been talking. Clearly, they've been conspiring. And they want to respond to what Jesus did the previous morning as he flipped over tables in the temple and made quite a scene. And they are eager to contradict his authority. And so you remember from the end of last week's sermon, they essentially say to him, who do you think you are, Jesus? And he pretty much responds to them, well, who do you think I am? By by what authority do you say that I do these things? And they won't answer him. And so he says, well, then I'm not going to answer you. And then what happens next is he begins to tell a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And he is going to, through this story, tell them exactly who he is and exactly who they are and how God feels about them. He's going to give them a picture of history from God's perspective and where they are in that moment and who all the characters are. We'll read that parable in just a moment, but I want you to understand something. This parable is different from all the other ones you've read. This one is, is different in a lot of ways. Typically, parables are intentionally obscure. They're they're obscure, they're hiding some of the details, they're masking things so that only those who have ears to hear will understand what Jesus is saying. It requires some some kind of spiritual lens to see through and spiritual ears to understand what he's saying. But this parable is different. This is going to be very overt, very clear, and everyone who hears it will not be able to mistake the imagery that that I just read about in Isaiah chapter 5. Typically, his parables are also told to the crowds, to those who are eager to hear his message. And in this case, he's going to to give this parable directly to his opponents. He's going to lock eyes with people who hate him. And as he shares this story, they are going to be stung by it. He's being intentionally provocative. Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly, but not in this interaction. This one is different. And typically, his parables have like one central meaning, but this one will be full a clear and obvious meaning as we go through it. He looks directly in the eyes of his opponents, and and, and our Lord is full of courage. He's not soft in any way. He looks at this crowd of powerful people, and he looks in their eyes in no disposition to, to spare their feelings. He's going to tell a story that is crystal clear to all who hear it, and they're not going to like what they hear. Jesus is going to be intentionally provocative, and he is going to reveal that he's talking about them. Do you know that Jesus, our Lord, he does not hesitate to confront sin. He does not hesitate to confront and stand against that which is is evil. He doesn't tell people, live your truth. Do your own thing. Do what works for you. He doesn't do that. And we see his approach is so different. When, When he comes to people who are lowly, who are downcast, who are outcast, he's so patient with them. He goes down to their level. He loves people in this very gentle way. But when it comes to those who are self-righteous in their sin, who think they have it all together, Jesus is very stern, especially towards those who are in leadership positions, who are leading others into error. And he is unchanged. He's unchanged in this regard. The way God feels towards those that would lead people intentionally into error, into false teaching, into that which is evil and destructive, Jesus has harsh things to say about that. Watch this. Chapter 12, verse 1. It says, He began to speak to them in parables. And he says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the winepress. And he built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. 
So in this parable, it starts out with there's this landowner who has this piece of, of dirt that's not really doing anything. And who does the, the master of this land represent? I'm telling you, the, the, the meaning in this parable is obvious. So who does the master of this land represent? It's God, right? And this landowner, he's taken this, this piece of dirt and he's cultivated it, he's prepared it, he's cared for it, he's established its boundaries, he's placed a tower in the midst of it to watch for animals that would come and, and steal and thieves that would come and try to take wine from the operation. He puts in place all the equipment, the vats, the press for the grapes, and he plants these vines with tender care and establishes this beautiful vineyard that ought to yield good fruit. And this process takes a long, long time. I know there are tons of wineries in Virginia. We tend to want to see ourselves as, as like the, the winery capital of the East Coast in places like Charlottesville and Loudoun County. Wine's a big deal in Virginia. But did you know that, that the majority of the wineries and vineyards in Virginia, they actually import their grapes from other places like California? Why? Well, the reason is because it takes actually a full three to five years for a vineyard to produce a good vintage, and that is if the weather cooperates. It takes a very long time. And then it takes another 11 to 13 years before a winery will yield a profit. And so the saying goes, you can make a small fortune in the winemaking business, but only if you started out with a much larger fortune. Okay. And so this landowner has created this vineyard, this beautiful place. And, and just as an aside, this is real wine. Throughout Scripture, there are, are many cases in which Jesus turns water into wine. He gives wine as a, as a, a sacrament as he gives the Last Supper to his, his brothers on that final evening before the crucifixion. This is real wine. Some people, uh, based on our, our own sensibilities, would want to say this is just like grape juice. There's no alcohol in it. Well, the process of removing alcohol from grape juice wasn't invented until the 1860s. So, so let's just set that aside, okay, for the moment. And, and this is a place that has been created to produce good wine for those that own it, for the owner of this vineyard. And he's set it up well. He's prepared it. He's he set up this well-functioning vineyard with all the features and the vats and the equipment that would be familiar to the audience. They're hearing this and they can picture this. They've seen it all around their countryside because vineyards like this were, were common. And what's clear from this passage and from Isaiah chapter 5 is that the owner of this vineyard, he cares tenderly about what he has established. He's invested in it. He's poured his love and his money and his sweat into this endeavor and he is expecting something good as a result, and, though he is willing to wait patiently for it. And so, as is common even now, what he does is he, he rents out the land, he gives it to some tenant farmers who will care for the land, he goes into a far country, and what he will do is he will return at some point after a, a good vintage has been produced in order to receive a percentage of that, while those that tend the vineyard get the rest. Does that seem like a fair deal? Yeah, I think it is. And so in Echoes of Isaiah chapter 5, the crowds, they know who all the characters are in this story so far. The vineyard is Israel. The owner is God. The tenants are the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, the clergy who are responsible for tending the vineyard and staying faithful to their covenants with God. But there's a problem. Man does not do as he ought to do. We do not do as we ought to do. And despite God's generosity, his goodness, his preparation, despite it all being his and him giving us everything necessary to succeed, things begin to take a very dark turn. It says in verse 2, when the season came, according to Leviticus 19, that's, that's about five years after this fruit has been established, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him 
and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. So here the master of this vineyard, he, he's, he desires that these tenants fulfill their end of the bargain. They do what they agreed to do. After all, it, it belongs to him. And so he sends to them these servants to collect, and they treat them terribly. They beat the first. They shamefully treat the second. They kill the third. If I'm the next servant up with this assignment, I'm calling in sick, right? You're not going because you know what's coming. You know what's coming. Who do the servants in this story represent in this parable? What do you think? Yeah, the prophets. You, you all are um, students of the scripture. You see, what this pictures is the, the prophets. For, for centuries, God had speaking and writing prophets who are sent to his people to urge them to turn back to his instruction, to repent from evil, to stand firm against enemy influences, to worship God alone. God had given the people of Israel everything. He had covenanted with them. He had liberated them. He had protected them. He had provided for them. Just as Isaiah says, it says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Yet again and again, they choose to reject God's laws, to to worship idols, to dishonor their master. And what's amazing about the patience and love of God is that he continues in his mercy to send more messengers, to send more messengers, to, to appeal to them, to turn. Sometimes we think that, that God is harsh or he's severe or he's unfair. And, and in Ezekiel 18 and 19, in these, in these chapters of Scripture, he says to people who protest, they say, God, you're not fair. And he says, how am I not fair? Despite your unfaithfulness for centuries, all I ask of you is that today you turn. And if you turn today, I will relent from any destruction against you. How is that not fair? He's saying that, that all this, this massive amount of disobedience against him can be atoned for. It can be, it can be changed with one turn of repentance from walking this direction to back toward him. And he says, but you don't. You don't turn. And God in his justice, he is so long-suffering. And he continues to send servant after servant despite them being rejected, beaten, and killed one after another. And the people of Israel, though they, they turn at times, the people of Judah turn at times, their history is a history of turning against the instruction of their loving vine dresser. And God, in his great love for his people, he continuously pursues them. But they, as Jesus is seeing right now, as he sees what's going on in the temple, they are continuing to choose their own way and rejecting the loving pursuit of God. The stiff-necked people will not listen. They will not honor God. And so, verse 6, it says, He still had one other. The master has one more to send. A beloved son. A beloved son. And he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This master sends his beloved son and they will kill him. Now, now as the week plays out, we see the cross approaching. And we know that Jesus is describing who? Who is he describing? Himself. We've seen this label for him already. When he was baptized, the heavens open and God the Father declares, This is my beloved son. 
We've seen on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son. And so when people say that Jesus never claimed to be divine, that he never claimed to be the son of God, point them to this passage. He's saying he is the beloved son. And in one of the most overt testimonies of his divinity, he tells leaders of Israel that he's that son and out of an unfathomable patience and mercy toward the wicked tenants of Israel, toward the wicked tenants of the earth, God sent us his beloved. And what do we do to him? We reject him. We deny him. We kill him. I don't want us to breeze by that this morning. We need to to feel the weight of this the patience and love of God. He's giving us God's perspective of history, and in that perspective, he has relentlessly pursued Israel to the point of sending his beloved to his death. I have a son of my own, a beloved son. Many of you here are our parents, and I don't even want to imagine the pain of this father as these wicked tenants look in the distance and they see the beloved, and they determine to kill this precious son but they do. They do. And verse 9 says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What would you do? What would you want to do? I know what I would want to do. I would want to protect my son, and if I couldn't protect him, I would want to avenge my son. The, The wrath would be swift and terrible, and apparently everyone in the crowd feels the same way. They're listening to this, and they're not like, oh, he should be merciful to the tenants. No, they are outraged. The ordinary people that are not the religious leaders, they're outraged at what they're hearing. And when they hear the story of what these tenants did to this precious beloved son, Jesus says he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The crowds actually speak this up for him in Matthew 21, verse 41. They say to him, those listening, they're listening well, and their opinion is this. They say he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. I think sometimes it can be so hard for us to wrap our minds around the wrath of God. We love all the kindness of God and all these things, but sometimes we have a hard time grasping the wrath of God until you picture it in these terms. When we see the way that he sent servant after servant, these beloved servants, and then his very own son, and these wicked tenants destroyed, his servants, and destroy his vineyard and keep everything that he's given them for themselves. You can understand it just a little bit more, can't you? That God's so, so patient. Who are the wicked tenants in this story? Certainly, it's, it's the leaders of Israel, his beloved vineyard, who have hardened their hearts toward Christ, who will lose the vineyard as the temple and Jerusalem are destroyed, and the message of salvation will actually be received more readily by Gentiles than by God's beloved people. And this is the mystery of God's plan of salvation, that he, he works through these, these, un, uh, th- these means that people could not have seen coming. And yet this is what he does. God has a relentless plan to save, but just as the crowd perceived that he told this parable about them, Many of us this morning can see ourselves in it too. Can you feel this for yourself? The conviction of this message, it's not just for the leaders of Israel. I felt this this conviction this week as I was preparing this message and I just considered a few things. Two things really stood out to me strongly in this passage. And number one is this, it's Israel rejects the prophets. These wicked tenants kill and reject the servants. And yet I wonder how often we reject the corrections of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. Some of you 
feel this more than others this morning. You know that you are in in certain hidden areas of your life living in open rebellion against God. And, and, And there was a time in which the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Holy Spirit was loud. Loud in your heart and mind, enough to be able to turn away from sin. You knew better. But you have become a a professional at silencing that voice of conviction, of turning toward your sin rather than toward God, of saying, no, I'm not hearing that. I'm going to do what I want to do. Just like these wicked tenants. But when the curtain of your life is pulled back, you know that there are areas in your life in which you are being Uh, blatantly disobedient and rebellious against God. And just as the people of Israel turn away from the prophets, you turn away from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Week after week, you come into church and you you sense conviction. You know there are are areas in your life that you need to change. I'm not talking about a works righteousness. I'm not talking about earning your salvation. But I am talking about turning away from sin and walking towards, towards purpose and life and fruitfulness in the Lord. And you know that the very chains around you that you are holding on to them tighter and tighter despite the fact that they are strangling you. Some of you this morning, um, you're, you're like these tenants in that you have not yet given your life to Jesus. And yet you've heard message after message about his love for you. You know the truth. You know the truth. You've heard sermon after sermon. You've come to church for years. You know your mom is praying for you. And yet you come in and you say, no, not yet. No, I don't think so. No, I don't think I want that. And and, and the issue there is if you don't soften your heart to receive God's goodness and his message and his grace towards you, what happens is the opposite. Your heart becomes harder and harder against him. That's what we see in the people of Israel. You're unwilling to heed his words. You're unwilling to relent, unwilling to hear his messages, and you are standing in deliberate rebellion. And the question facing us this morning is whether we will heed the warnings that he gives us and his gentleness and his patience, or if we will continue in our rebellion. This is an invitation, an invitation to repent of sin, to turn from sin, and to receive his grace. That's the first thing that really stood out to me, is that that he sends servant after servant and yet they don't listen. The second thing that that really stood out to me is that the tenants of this vineyard, they recognized the son. They recognized him. They saw him coming. They had no trouble seeing that this was no ordinary servant. This was the beloved son. And rather than relenting, they become even more willful in their rebellion. And this just jumped out at me. He's saying to the, the gathered leaders of Israel, you know who I am. You know who I am. And you're gonna kill me. You know I'm the son of God. And you're going to take my life. I wonder how many people, even some of you here this morning, you reject Jesus, not because you don't believe in his reality. Not because the message doesn't make sense to you. Actually, you know exactly who he is. You know exactly what he's done for you. You recognize him. And yet you rebel against him. Not out of disbelief, but because you simply don't want to give what he requires. You simply don't want to turn over the parts of your life that you know he requires of you. You want to continue to do it your own way. And you are unwilling to relent control of your life because your so-called freedom is too precious to you. And a life of righteousness is simply too demanding. Some of you can look at your own life and you're already, you're sensing the weight of this. You know that when Jesus started this parable that you were like these wicked tenants or at least you've been like that. And you've come to the point of realization in your life in which you know that that apart from his intervention, you are helpless and hopeless in your sin. You need his grace. You need his mercy. 
And today, the beloved son has come to you. He has come to your vineyard. And and the question for us this morning is, will we receive him? Will we respond to him? Will we turn to him? Or will we turn against him and harden our hearts? 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, walked bravely into Jerusalem day after day to appeal to people that he knew were going to kill him. And though the, the, the... Our Christ would die a criminal's death. The beauty of the story is that he knew what was coming for him and he rode forth anyway to die in the place of sinners because he loves even the wicked tenants. Even the wicked tenants. He loves you. He came to you out of love for you. And unlike how Isaiah chapter 5 describes the, the destruction of the vineyard, instead Jesus says the tenants, the religious leaders of Israel, will be destroyed and the vineyard will be given to others, namely Gentile believers, those who would receive this message until the proper time. Yet what Jesus even expresses in this parable, he's even different from this parable because they will kill the son. They will crucify him. But rather than your father, his father coming in wrath against the wicked tenants, God, through Christ, offers forgiveness even to those that kill him. He offers mercy and grace to those who would receive it. This just blows me away that Jesus didn't just die because of wicked tenants. He died for them. If only they would turn. So as the band comes up and we we come to a conclusion, I just want us to, to reflect on this before we go into communion. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world, listen to this, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him. 2,000 years ago, God's beloved son paid it all so that you and I could become his beloved sons and daughters. Romans 6.23 says this. It says, the wages that are due for our sin, the wages for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what the gospel demonstrates, that we're far more broken than we could possibly imagine and that we are far more loved than we could ever dare believe. Jesus came to us in our brokenness and our rebellion and when we would turn away from him and have killed his servants and would kill him and he says, I will forgive you if you believe in me. I will give you eternal life because of my love. Everyone's just heard this parable. The leaders are gathered around Jesus and he says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting the scriptures, and he says to them that they will be faced with a choice. Though they will kill him, God is at work doing even greater things, and Jesus will be like a rock that can either be a steady cornerstone, that most important stone that becomes the foundation of everything else in your life, or we can reject him. And we can stumble over him like a stone of stumbling. The question is this for us this morning. Will we recognize the beloved son? And if we do, will we reject him or will we receive his grace? Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Don't. Let that happen to you. They left him and went away when they perceived he was talking about them. Let that not be true of you. Don't miss this opportunity. Throw yourself upon his grace. Receive the beloved son with gladness and turn. I'm going to take Holy Communion in just a moment. I'm going to read a scripture and then I'm going to just invite you to take 
a minute to prepare your heart to, to face the message this morning and say, Lord, is there anything you're saying to me and is there anything you want me to do in response to it?